from Mark, the first chapter, verses 29 to 39. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus, James, and John went home with Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed, sick with a fever. And they told Jesus about her at once. He went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she served them, of course. That evening at sunset, people brought to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases, and he threw out many demons. But he didn't let the demons speak because they recognized him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. He replied, let's head in the other direction to the nearby villages so that I can preach there too. That's why I've come. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and throwing out demons. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. To the dismay of my high school English teachers and the chagrin of all the theater folks that have come through the doors at Madison Street Church, I'm not much of an actor. The pastoral theologian Stuart Briscoe once said that good pastors have the heart of a child, the mind of a scholar, and the hide of a rhinoceros. <laughs> the capacity to bury oneself in the role didn't make the cut. I've never aspired to act. But I've always thought it would be cool to learn the craft of staging a scene. To find the way to subtly communicate the meta-narrative that drives the actor's lines and performance. My favorite character in The West Wing, which is my favorite television show of all time, my favorite character is Gail the Goldfish. Gail the Goldfish was a gift to C.J. Craig, then the White House press secretary, by an erstwhile boyfriend. And somehow this solitary goldfish in a little bowl lives seven seasons on television. <laughs> I had goldfish that didn't live seven minutes. But in every episode, Gale the Goldfish's bowl is staged with something different, something unique, something that furthers the story. You have to look for it. It's very subtle. Now Craig is thinking, I'm going to have to go back and watch. <laughs> but it's always different. There's always something in the goldfish bowl that's different, that helps tell the story. I think that's an amazing gift. And I would love to learn how to do that. Subtlety. Adding meaning for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. We tend to write the Gospel of Mark off as this breathless rush. The 
The word used most in Mark's gospel is the Greek word chi, which translates and. And it is easy for us to see this gospel as a 16-chapter run-on sentence that just continues and continues and continues. But inside the breathlessness, Mark stages the gospel story of Jesus with a profound subtlety and depth of meaning. Our text today is an example of the ways that Mark leads us to the truth in plain sight. The ways he tells the secrets of the Gospel in such a way that any with ears to hear and any with eyes to see can find them. Jesus stages his mission in these verses. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. He, Mark tells us the story of Jesus' purpose in, in, in acts and scenes. The first scene is in verses 29 to 31. And by, by the way, that, that picture is of, of a scene it uh, is Edward Gorton Craig's uh, design of, uh, of the 1912 performance of Hamlet in the Moscow Art Theater. Uh, it, is, it is a way to stage that tells the story. Hamlet is told as this grand political drama on the stage of a 1912 pre-revolutionary Russian theater. And in doing so, it is one of the great inspirations for how Hamlet has been done in years following. But Jesus' mission begins not on a grand stage with uniforms and pageantry. It begins in the home of his friend and his friend's mother-in-law with a fever. It begins in the intimacy of a house with a need immediate and right in front of him. And Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. And of course, in that culture, a woman healthy and restored immediately begins to serve all the men folk in the room. I don't get that, but there it is. I didn't write this stuff. But that intimacy of that first act of Jesus coming into the home of his friends and discovering this woman with a fever and healing her is a profound starting point for understanding the mission and the work of Jesus. There's a second scene following the intimacy of this home. The neighborhood gathers. The village gathers. Everybody comes out. And the entire community comes for healing and for exorcism. Jesus confronts evil and confronts need and He makes a difference. And Mark stages a second act 
of this story of Jesus' mission in the world by expanding from this one house to the entire town. These people did not come together with unity and agreement. They didn't come together all wanting the same thing. They came together only knowing their brokenness and only aware of their need for God to act afresh. And God through Christ does just that. The third act is the next morning and it finds Jesus in prayerful solitude and the disciples in a frenzied search for them. The, uh, the translation I read for you this morning, the Common English Bible, does not do justice to the Greek when, when we read um, that uh, Simon and those with him tracked him down. The, the Greek there is Simon and his friends in a frenzied search for Jesus tracks him down. They were scared to be without Jesus. And yet Jesus was modeling the priority of solitude, the need to step back from and to become quiet in God's presence, to recharge the batteries, to not live constantly in overflow, but to come away and to be still and know that God is God. And it is then and only then in scene four that Jesus declares his purpose. We're going to go in the other direction. We're going to go to all the towns in Galilee. We're going to move. Jesus is on the move. Jesus is creating a movement. Jesus could have been the sage on the stage. He could have set up shop in Capernaum and said, I've built it. You come. Come and hear all the good news. Come and get healed. Come and get your demon cast out. Come and I'll deliver the goods. Come and I'll perform. Come and I'll act. But Jesus doesn't do that. He creates a movement. He goes to all the villages and towns of Galilee to this to this this cracker barrel of a, of a nation, this place of, of mixed races and mistrust Galilee, this place that was far away from the purity and holiness of Jerusalem, this place that, that everybody looked at and said, can anything good come from there? And Jesus says, that's where I'm going. Wherever there's margin, wherever, there's, wherever there are people living at the margins, that's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm headed. Jesus' mission, according to Mark, is to start a God movement. God had been sort of quiet with his people over the last few hundred years. 
The era of the prophets had seemingly come to an end. And there were people who pretended, who claimed to be prophets, but it never quite panned out. And now here was this guy who spoke with authority, who cast out demons with authority, who challenged the forces of evil with authority, and challenged our basic assumptions about everyday life with authority. And it would have been so easy for Jesus to just say, yep, yeah, okay, open the doors, bring them in. But he doesn't. He goes. He moves. It's on a quest. On a movement. And a God movement requires the things that happened to Jesus in the preceding verses. The intimacy of friendship and family. The capacity to gather. Not, not in that cloying sense of unity. Not that all of our theological boxes have been properly ticked and our tickets have been properly punched and we're the company of the committed who all agree on the same things, but rather in the capacity to admit that we are broken beyond our capacity to repair. And we need a Savior. And then a commitment. Commitment to solitude over frenzy. A commitment to quietness over busyness. A commitment to too little on our calendars instead of too much. These are the ingredients that conspire together to turn Jesus from religious performer to leader of a movement. And they are the elements that call to us as the people of God to embrace in our lives as participants in that movement. When we stage the Gospel, do we stage a grand panorama? Or do we stage it in living rooms and in communities of brokenness? and in quietness over frenzy. Clarence Jordan is one of my heroes. He's so much a hero I named my son after him. Clarence Jordan lived from 1912 to 1969. He got his bachelor's degree in agricultural science from the University of Georgia. Can't all be perfect. He got his Ph.D. in New Testament from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You get a Ph.D. in New Testament Greek and a bachelor's degree in agriculture. That's pretty cool. He, uh, he founded a thing called Koinonia Farms in Americus, Georgia. Koinonia Farms was one of the first attempts in pre- and post-war America for Christians to live in integrated, intentional community. Think about that for a minute. Before the Civil Rights Movement, there was a gathering of Christians in rural Georgia 
black and white, living together, farming together, working the land together, being hated together. Koinonia Farms did not score high on the popularity scale in the Americas community. Their buildings were torched, their crops were ruined on several occasions, and yet Clarence Jordan continued to bring together a community, a small community of people together around Koinonia Farms. In the early 60s, a very, very busy businessman heard about Koinonia Farms and came knocking on the door. His name was Millard Fuller. And it was during Millard Fuller's time living and working at Koinonia Farms. He'd originally scheduled a two-day retreat. He ended up staying about six months. I suppose when you're a rich businessman, you can shift your schedule around like that. He did. And Habitat for Humanity was born at Koinonia Farms. Koinonia Farms was in Americus, Georgia. And Koinonia Farms did not escape the observation of a peanut farmer down the road named James Earl Carter, who ran for the state senate, not as a segregationist, who ran for governor to oppose segregation and won, and then ran for president of the United States. And whatever we may think of Jimmy Carter's policies or politics, we would have to say he was an honorable, decent man. Imagine if Clarence Jordan had simply said, you know what, I'm too busy for the intimacy of an interracial community, farming community and I'm too valuable as a New Testament scholar to deal with the riffraff of the Ku Klux Klan banging on my door every third night. I'm going to take a nice seminary post somewhere and live in a scholarly ivory tower writing wonderful commentaries and encouraging pastors everywhere. Imagine what, had hap- what would have happened had Clarence Jordan done that. There would have been no Millard Fuller. There would have been no Habitat for Humanity. Millions of people would be without homes today. Not just in this country, but around the world. Imagine if Jimmy Carter hadn't had that witness of Koinonia Farms down the road. Imagine no honorable presidency after the trauma of Watergate. No amazing 37-year and counting post-presidency where nations that had never held a free election in their lives began to hold them and began to create democratic institutions because of Jimmy Carter. Imagine a world where river blindness was still a thing because the Carter Center didn't exist. Because Millard Fuller Sorry, because Clarence Jordan had never started Koinonia Farms. We think small starts, we think small efforts are just that. They're small. They don't matter. 
They're not big. They're not prestigious. They're not grand. They're not grandiose. They don't, we, they don't do great things. No Clarence Jordan. No Koinonia Farms. No Koinonia Farms. No Millard Fuller. No Millard Fuller. No Habitat for Humanity. No Koinonia Farms. No Jimmy Carter. No Carter Center. No relief in the world. Imagine a world without Habitat for Humanity and the Carter Center. It's a worse place. But it's because this guy, this guy figured out that discipleship is about the intimacy of living rooms and the gathering of communities and the search for solitude over frenzy. He welcomed a movement that does not stand still. How did he do that? Well, he did it pretty imperfectly because when you read the contemporary accounts of Clarence Jordan, he looks really nice there in a coat and tie. I, I picked one of the good pictures of him. He had a bit of a temper. He didn't always get along with everybody who lived at Koinonia Farms. He occasionally had to stomp out of meetings and go out in the fields and kill some bugs before he knew how to talk to the people he worked with and lived with. He preferred his dog-eared Greek New Testament to face-to-face -face stuff. But he kept at it in fits and starts always committed to continuing the process to learn how to be a disciple of Jesus. And I think what he did were these five things. He, he eradicated the silent temptation to see Jesus as the sage on the stage. To see Jesus as a wonder worker that we put on the shelf and that we do our dead level best to separate our lives from. We create a plastic shrine to Jesus and then hope he doesn't get too close to us. Clarence Jordan worked his entire life to eradicate that kind of spirituality in his own life and in the life of Koinonia Farms. He embraced the secret wideness of Jesus' ministry, that it comes from the center. Here he was, a privileged white person a bachelor's degree in the heart of the Depression in agriculture, a doctorate in, you know, that most marketable of fields, New Testament Greek. <laughs> this was a guy who embodied white privilege. And yet he left the centers of power and privilege and prestige and went to the margins. He lived in the way of Jesus, in intimacy, in crowds, in solitude. He recognized that the good news, he recognized the good news that no one need be put on the outside looking into God's realm. That those who choose to live outside of God's grace make that choice themselves. That it is not the role of Christian community to make it for them. But instead, the place of Christian community is to always open its doors. 
And so we have to think differently about what unity is, about what it means to be one people. It doesn't mean we're homogenized, marching in lockstep. It means we argue with each other. It means we disagree with each other. It means sometimes we're disagreeable with each other. But it also means that we're always committed to each other. And we're committed to the world around us. And the door is always open. And there is always another seat at the table. Always. And Clarence Jordan welcomed the truth that Jesus is on the move to restore. To restore all of God's creation to the ways of God. Clarence Jordan just wasn't an evangelist out to save souls. He was a guy who was trying to figure out how to grow crops better in Georgia, in that tough red clay soil. How to grow crops that didn't strip the soil of its nutrients, but put back. How to create a sustainable Christian community. Before we ever had language about that, there was Clarence Jordan doing it. Yeah, he's my hero. Imperfect, incomplete, bit of a knucklehead at times. I'd like to be more like him. So this morning, some questions for us. And a quote from Clarence Jordan himself. Faith is not belief in spite of evidence, but a life in scorn of the consequences. If you think that Christianity is simply a set of beliefs, here's a set of doctrines and I agree to them, ta-da, yay, you have indulged yourself in a great adventure and missing the point. Because Christianity is not a set of beliefs, it's a way of life. Following Jesus changes everything about us. And it continues to change us. I don't care how long we've been in the journey, Jesus still wants to be at work changing our lives. We ain't done yet. And so some questions for us. How do you, how do you go about separating Jesus from your everyday life? Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure that's a good idea? But we do it. We figure out all kinds of ways. We figure out all kinds of hoops to jump through. We figure out all kinds of doctrinal and theological arguments to take the plain words of Jesus and say, that's maybe for the millennium, not for today. Nobody really expects you to turn the other cheek. Not really. Not really. That's for, that's for later. No, it isn't. How do you go about separating Jesus from your everyday life? And are you sure you want to keep doing that? Where's the margin that Jesus is calling you to discover? Whatever privileges and whatever, whatever gifts you've been born with, 
Where is Jesus calling you to take those and to use them in new and creative ways, in ways that don't perpetuate the status quo at the center, but bring new life to the edges? Where do you find the balance of intimacy and crowds and solitude to be a faithful disciple? For some of us, we need to figure out how to be quiet a bit more. It would be me. Some of us, we need to figure out how to find our voice and to speak out. For some of us, we need to commit ourselves to a small group of people and say, yeah, my, my life's at your disposal. My life is to be shared with yours. Maybe most importantly, who have you written off in the way of discipleship? Who have you just said, you know, Simon, I, I get it that your mother-in-law is sick in bed over there, but really I've had a, I've had a, I've had a very busy day. I'm, I, I, I'm done. Talk to me later. Who have you written off in your life of discipleship? Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to write people off? Faith is not belief in spite of evidence, but a life lived in scorn of the consequences. The songwriter Brian Wren said it perhaps another way with the lyrics to a hymn. This is a day of new beginnings. Time to remember and move on. Time to release what love is bringing laying to rest the pain that's gone. For by the life and, life and death of Jesus, God's mighty Spirit now as then can make for us a world of difference as faith and hope are born again. Then let us with the Spirit's daring step from the past and leave behind our disappointment, guilt, and grieving, seeking new paths and sure to find Christ is alive and goes before us to show and to share what love can do. This is a day of new beginnings. Our God is making all things new. We've come through a year as a congregation of incredible grieving and pain, of disappointments and frustration, of anger and disillusionment of frustration and petulance and I say to you this morning I say to each of you with all the love I can muster in my heart this is a day of new beginnings not just because the Patriots are going to lose the Super Bowl oh did I did I say that out loud this is a day of new beginnings Whatever your frustration has been, this is a day of new beginnings. Not because we're just going to put it on the shelf and ignore it, but because Jesus is sick and tired of it. It's time for us to be the Koinonia Farms of the 21st century. 
The small little demonstration plot of the kingdom that is imperfect as all get out. But, but it's willing to scorn the consequences. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. That's the new thing God wants to do in our lives. We're all carrying painful loads. And I'm not here to tell you, oh, just put it down. Oh, let it go. Oh, ignore it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in the midst of that, God is making all things new. And you either believe that or you don't. And if you believe it, we need to move forward. And if you don't, we're going to carry you for a while until you do. Because that's what communities do. We're going to scorn the consequences. And we're going to live in hope. Not because it's easy or because we've got it all figured out, but because it is what we are called to be. One more thing. Actually, sorry, two more things. (laughs) God is a God of motion, Leonard Sweet writes, of movement and of mission. Mission is not an activity of the church, but an attribute of God. God is a missionary God. Jesus is a missionary Messiah. And the Spirit is a missionary spirit. Missions is the family business. And Dwight Moody, who says, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. The mission of God is to ultimately reconcile everything under His reign. That's our business. And it happens on our knees, in living rooms, in crowds, in solitude. we can decide that church is simply something we plug into our lives on Sunday morning because we ought to, we've been doing it, whatever whatever reason you want. Or we can say, God has called me and us to the family business, to reconciling the world back to himself. And so I'm going to take the gift that God's given me just like he did with Moses. And the stick that Moses held in his hand. God's voice in the burning bush in Exodus says, Moses, what do you hold in your hand? A stick. Throw it down. Give it up. You middle-aged loser working for your father-in-law in in an entry-level job. Take the only thing that gives you significance and standing in the community and give it up. And Moses does. And God says, pick it up. And it was a snake, the symbol of the imperial power of the greatest empire the world had known at that point. God wants to take your best, your gifts, your skills, your talents, and through the work of intimacy in circles 
and ministry together as a community, and solitude. He wants to take that and fashion that stick into great power. Not for our self-aggrandizement, but to reconcile the world back to Him. That's our mission. That's our calling. Nothing more, nothing less. Join me in prayer. Grant us the courage to join the family business. Teach us to recognize that the family business is not what we do, but what you do. That our gifts and skills, our talents and abilities, our joys and our pains, our history and our potential, all conspire together not for our self-righteousness, but for Your great work. May we be bold enough to bow on our knees, to surrender in yieldedness to You, and to do Your work in scene after scene after scene to bring your good news forward to the world. Through Christ we pray. Amen.